So we started uh, a new series last Sunday. It's called Deeply Satisfied. And at a really, really big level, uh, we're talking about the idea that many of us do not experience deep satisfaction in our lives. Um, We do sometimes, right? It's not like our lives are miserable, uh, but there's a lot of nights where we go to bed anxious or overwhelmed or stressed out or exhausted or with a sense of loneliness or disconnection, not feeling truly content or satisfied in our lives. And there are many different possible uh, reasons for this, but so many studies are now showing that there is one thing in particular that almost all of us, it's a part of almost all of our lives, and it's very much connected to this lack of contentment or this lack of fulfillment or this lack of satisfaction that we have, and it's the pervasive use of our digital devices. And so in this series, um, we're going to be exploring that. Now, if you weren't here last week, um, we did a whole bunch of introduction and talked about why this is important and some of these things. And so go back and maybe listen to that, and that'll help set the stage for why we're talking about this. Um, And today, we're going to talk about one really big idea, uh, one of the most powerful influences in our lives. But before we do that, let me just make one quick disclaimer, and it's this. Our digital devices are not evil but they are not neutral either. And that's really, really important. Our our digital devices um, are not evil, right? They're tools, just like any other tool in our life that can be used for lots of different uh, purposes. And there's many good and constructive and creative uh, purposes for which we can use our phones or our digital devices. But it's also important to note, they're not neutral either. When we use our digital devices and the way we use them is shaping us. It is forming us. It is changing us. And because of the number of hours that most of us spend on all kinds of devices every single day, they're shaping and forming us in ways that we are often not fully aware of. So again, they're not evil, right? The answer or the problem is not we have these devices and they're evil and we just need to get rid of them. The problem is they're not neutral. And they're shaping us in ways we haven't fully realized or fully dealt with yet. Okay, so uh, today uh, I want to talk about one of the first and maybe biggest ways that um, we are being shaped. And here's the key word to remember. It's the word attention. Attention. If we could define it, um, attention is concentration or focus of the mind on a thought, task, object, or Person. So uh, when a teacher says, pay attention, you know, here's the assignment that is due tomorrow, what that means is we need to listen, right? We need to focus on what they're about to tell us um, so that we know what to do. Or if a soldier is told to stand at attention, right? It, it means stand uh, ready and willing and focus on whatever the superior officer is about to say. Now, to varying degrees, we all have challenges, when it comes to focusing our attention, right? It's not just those who are diagnosed with ADHD. We all have challenges. Uh, One of my challenges is noise, okay? I cannot read very well. I can't think very well. I I can't focus very well if there's a lot of noise. So if people are talking, 
if there are conversations happening, if there's music in the background, if there's a TV going on in the background, it just, it distracts my attention. If, if I want to or I need to focus on something, I know I need to turn off the noise or I need to go to another room where it's quiet. Um, or like a couple of days ago, I was sitting at home reading and it was glorious because it was so quiet. And then my whole family came home and they were really yelled and I like yelled at them like, shut up, I'm trying to read, right? Because I just can't. I get grumpy about it, right? I can't focus my attention. I can't think straight if there's a lot of noise. And we all have things that distract us like that, okay? Now, as we grow up in school first, and then later in our careers, here's what we learn. Accomplishment requires attention. If we want to accomplish something, anything really, it requires our attention, If you want to make good grades in school, you have to give your attention to it. If you want to be good at a sport, right, you have to figure out what's going to help you be stronger or faster or better, and then you have to do those things. That's what practice is. It's really focused attention. If you want to be good at any artistic endeavor, if you want to learn any new skill, if you want to do your job well, if you want to get a promotion, if you want to be successful in your career, you have to give it your attention. If you have any specific task or or any goal that you want to accomplish, it can be a work goal or a a personal goal. Um, Joey is in the process right now of writing a book, and I saw on his calendar the other day, he had an entire day just blocked out, and it said writing. Because he knew that he needed to try to write or finish this chapter in his book, and the only way he was going to finish this thing or work on this thing was to block everything else out and just do this thing and give it his sole, single-minded attention. And this is how it is with any significant accomplishment in life. Anything that takes work requires our attention. It's like if I asked you right now uh, to multiply the numbers 13 by 17 without using a calculator or your phone. You could do it, right? You've known how to do that since about fourth grade, but it's going to require focus. It means you need a piece of paper and a pencil and about 10 seconds of not listening to me or blocking everything else out so that you can accomplish this task. You can't do it while you're also trying to do a whole bunch of other things. Accomplishment requires attention. Uh, We also learn that relationships require attention, right? A relationship with another person will not be developed unless you spend focused time with them. It won't be maintained unless you give focused attention to that person. Uh, Relationships need good communication, They need compassion, they need empathy, they need understanding, they need a lot of listening. At some point, they'll need some forgiving, right? All these things require our attention. In fact, whenever a relationship breaks down, whether it's with a roommate or a friend or a boss or a coworker or someone in your family or maybe even a spouse, right? We usually realize after the fact that part of the reason it broke down, maybe the main reason is because the relationship wasn't getting any attention. So relationships require attention. Here's another one. Faith requires attention. A a living faith that, that actively trusts in God, that can take the sort of broken pieces of our lives, that can take the challenges or the circumstances we find ourselves in, 
that can take the decisions that we feel like we need to make and we're struggling to figure out how to make them, that can take the anxieties or the emotions that we feel. A, a faith that can take all of these things and say, God, I need you, I need your vision, or I need your strength, or I need your patience, or I need your discernment or wisdom right now. I need to know that you love me and that you're with me and that my life is in the palm of your hand so that no matter what I'm facing right now, I know you are with me in it. That sort of faith, it requires attention. Uh, It's illustrated in a great story um, from the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, The disciples are on a boat. They're out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with this really big lake. It's nighttime. The water is choppy. And the disciples see this person walking towards them on the water, right? Which makes zero sense. And so they start to freak out. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. It's me. Chill out. it's, It's me. I'm just going for a stroll out here on the water. And then look at what Peter says. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat. He walked on the water and he came toward Jesus. So so this is amazing, right? And, And it brings up all sorts of questions about how do I believe a story like this? But if I can just set those aside for a moment, Peter is walking on the water. He is doing something amazing. And then do you remember what happens? says, but when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and he caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, Peter didn't doubt to begin with, right? He believed. If Jesus says, I can do it, and you call me out here, then I can do it. And he did it, right? He only started to doubt when he took his eyes off of Jesus. When he began to see the waves and he began to think about all the reasons why this shouldn't work. See, faith requires our attention. And not faith like God's going to do miracles in your life kind of faith. Just that kind of faith that God is with us in whatever it is that we face. This is why the writer of Hebrews says this. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes, fixing our attention, our focus on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Uh, There's one more story I want to read for you today. It comes from the book of Luke. Here's what Luke says. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Now, many of us already know this story. We've read this in the past. Um, And you might remember that Mary and Martha, and in fact, they have a brother named Lazarus. He's not mentioned in this story, but they're actually friends with Jesus. These are not just random people that Jesus showed up at their house, right? They lived outside of Jerusalem. Jesus lived up in northern Israel. And so whenever Jesus traveled down to Jerusalem for one of the big festivals during the year, he would often stop by their house because they would invite him and his followers over to share a meal at their house or maybe even to stay at their house while they were in Jerusalem. So Jesus has stopped to see his friends. 
Mary is there. She's hanging out with Jesus. She's sitting with him. She's talking with him. She's mostly listening to him. Martha is there too, but she's making dinner, right? She's setting the table. She's, she's getting everything ready. So she's in Jesus's presence, but she's not really present. She's distracted, we're told. And the verb that's used here, the Greek word that's used here, literally means to be pulled away, to be dragged away. It's, it's when you're with someone, but you're not really with them anymore because you've been pulled away or you've been dragged away. And in this case, it was the cooking and the cleaning and the serving and the tasks that were pulling her away. You might remember what happens next. It says this, Martha came to Jesus and she asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, shaking his head, right? You are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or indeed only one. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. So Martha kind of gets mad, but instead of chiding Mary, Jesus actually challenges Martha. Because Martha invited Jesus into her home to be with him, and then Martha left. Now, she didn't physically go anywhere, but she wasn't with Jesus anymore. She was no longer present. And what this story shows us is that presence requires attention. In fact, that's what really all of these things are about. Accomplishment is about being present in the good work that you're doing. Relationships is about being present to the people in your life. Faith is about being present to what God is doing in your life. They're all about presence. And presence requires attention. And this is why we have to talk about our digital devices. Because they don't simply compete for our attention anymore. They've come to dominate our attention. Uh, We live in a new world now. And in a new economy that did not exist 15 or 20 years ago. In fact, it's actually called the attention economy. And the reason it's called that is because there is now so much information available to us, more than we can ever process, and so many products available to us, more than we could ever purchase, that the most valuable commodity in our world now is your attention and my attention. In other words, uh, product makers and content creators are doing everything they can to get your attention so that you will consume their content or purchase their product. So now we have an entirely new layer in our economy, media companies, right, that broker in the acquisition and sale of your attention. So that every single view, every single glance, every single download, every single click is an opportunity for media companies to make money, which is what they do off of your attention. Now, at some level, we all know this already, right? This is not news. We, we know that the, the programs we watch on 
on TV or the websites we visit have all sorts of advertising and they're making money off of that and we try to find ways to skip the ads or get around them, but that's how they make money. We know that games and apps that we download for free have little ads that go with them and pop up things, right? We know that social media companies, right? And even browsers are somehow making lots and lots and lots of money off of us, even though the products they've given us have been for free, right? We, we know all this, but we rarely pause to realize that what they're actually doing is simply buying and selling our attention. Uh, listen to how one former Google exec described the whole process. His name is Uh, Tristan Harris, um, you might recognize him. He appeared in a documentary a couple of years ago called The Social Dilemma. He was friends with the guys who started, created and started Instagram. He went to Stanford, he interned at Apple, and then he worked at Google. And now he's trying to sound the alarm for what our devices are doing to us because he was part of designing the things that our devices did to us. And so here's a short interview he did with 60 Minutes a couple of years ago. This thing is a slot machine. How is that a slot machine? Well, every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get. This is one way to um, hijack people's minds and create a habit, to form a habit. What you do is you make it so when someone pulls a lever, sometimes they get a reward, an exciting reward. And it turns out that this design technique can be embedded inside of all these products. The rewards Harris is talking about are a big part of what makes smartphones so appealing. The chance of getting likes on Facebook and Instagram, cute emojis and text messages, and new followers on Twitter. There's a whole playbook of techniques that get used to get you using the product for as long as possible. You know, what, are, what kind of techniques are used? So Snapchat's the most popular uh, messaging service for teenagers, and they invented this feature called Streaks which shows the number of days in a row that you've sent a message back and forth with someone. So now you can say, well, what's the big deal here? Well, the problem is that kids feel like, well, now I don't want to lose my streak. But it turns out that kids actually, when they go on vacation, are so stressed about their streak that they actually give their password to like five other kids to keep their streaks going on their behalf. And so you could ask, when, when these features are being designed, are they designed to most help people live their life? Or are they being designed because they're best at hooking people into using the product? Is, is Silicon Valley programming apps or are they programming people? Inadvertently, whether they want to or not, they're shaping the thoughts and feelings and actions of, of people. They are programming people. They, there's always this narrative that technology is neutral and it's up to us to choose how we use it. This is just not true. Technology is not neutral. It's not neutral. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time because that's how they make their money. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time because that's how they make their money. And for most of us, it just sucks us right in. Now, I've never been much on social media like Facebook or, or Instagram or things like that. That hasn't been a big challenge for me. Um, I have a particular weakness for YouTube, okay? I love watching sports highlights on YouTube. I love watching artists create things on YouTube. 
I love watching old clips of Seinfeld or The Office. I love watching this musician named Rick Beato explain how certain songs work. I love watching old videos of concerts of heavy metal bands that I loved in high school. I love watching this guy who lives down in Australia and has this channel called Primitive Technology build stuff while he's living off the land. And I love watching all of the recommendations that YouTube so kindly provides to me every single day, just like every other video and social media service. And I could spend hours, and some days I have, hours and hours and hours watching these videos, which, by the way, each of them taken on their own are actually creative and interesting videos. But YouTube doesn't want me to just watch one video for five minutes and then log off and go out and live my life. Their goal is not to help me live a better life. Their goal is to capture as much of my attention as they possibly can. Their goal is for my eyes to be focused on the screen. And this is why our relationships often suffer. This is why we often feel like we have so many friends and acquaintances, but we're not really present or close to any of them. This is why we can feel lonely and disconnected. This is why we all have things we want to accomplish in our lives, but sometimes it's just so hard to get around to actually accomplishing them. It's why our minds and our hearts often feel scattered. It's why our faith often feels distracted. It's why it is so hard for us, even when we're around a lot of people, to be fully present to what's going on in our lives. So how did we get to this place, right? How did this happen? Well, here's what author Cal Newport says to that question. He says this, In my experience, most people who are struggling with the online part of their lives are not weak-willed or stupid, They're instead successful professionals, striving students, loving parents. They are organized and used to pursuing hard goals. Yet somehow the apps and sites beckoning from behind the phone and tablet screen, unique among the many temptations they successfully resist daily, have managed to succeed in metastasizing unhealthily far beyond their original roles. How did that happen, right? We all embraced these devices because they were going to make our lives better in small and incremental ways, and yet now we've gotten to this point where they dominate. How did that happen? Here's what he says. He goes on. A large part of the answer about how this happened is that many of these new tools are not nearly as innocent as they might first seem. People don't succumb to screens because they're lazy, but instead because billions of dollars have been invested to make this outcome inevitable. So what do we do about this? Well, I have a challenge for you. And as I said uh, last week when we kicked all this off, the challenge is not to just throw away all of your devices. It's also not to give you a long list of hacks to try to implement. Because what we really need to do is step back and ask, What is the proper and good place? There is a good place. So what is the proper and good place of digital technology in our lives? And that's a question that we will get to in this series. But in order to answer it, 
we also have to step back from the strong influence of the attention economy. So I want to challenge you to do something described in this book, Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. And here's the challenge. It's to do a 31-day digital declutter. So the idea is that we all have a lot of digital clutter in our lives. We have so many apps, so many notifications, so many accounts, so many subscriptions, so many different things that are competing with and pulling our attention away. And it's a bit like when you walk into someone's house or or someone's apartment and they've been collecting clutter for years and years and years and years. And like 90% of it now has zero value in their lives anymore. It's just become trash or clutter or junk. It's stuff they don't use anymore or it's stuff they think they need, but they don't really need. It's just taking up space in their lives. You can't even see the walls or the ground anymore, but they've been living with this clutter for so long that it's just become normal. They don't even see it as clutter anymore. And digitally, we're the same way. There's a lot of clutter And so what if for 31 days we just got rid of as much clutter as we possibly could? Uh, Practically speaking, Newport suggests three steps to a digital declutter process. Step one, put aside a 31-day period in your life, and I'm going to suggest the month of October which begins next Sunday, okay? So the month of October, take 31 days during which you will take a break from all optional technologies in your life. So optional just means not necessary, right? So if you have an Instagram account and you check it some, uh, but it's not really necessary or essential in your life, then just take a 31-day break from it. Just delete the app from your phone for 31 days. Now, maybe you have a job in marketing. Maybe part of your job is to run your company's Instagram account. Well, it is necessary for you, so you can't take a break from it. But figure out what the optional digital technologies are in your life. Hint, it's most of them, right? And then you just take a break from them. You just delete them for 31 days. Step two, during this break, explore and rediscover activities that you find satisfying and meaningful. And that's ultimately the goal of this. This isn't just to sit around and complain about the dangers of technology, right? The goal is to explore and experience the deep satisfaction that we all long for in life. And doing a a digital declutter for 31 days just creates space for you to begin to explore and rediscover the things that are the most truly satisfying. We'll spend a lot more time talking about some of those things later in this series. And then step number three, at the end of the break, reintroduce optional technologies into your life, starting from a blank slate. For each technology you reintroduce, determine what value it serves in your life and how specifically you will use it so as to maximize this value. So again, we'll talk more about this as well, but Technology is not evil. There are some values and benefits that certain technological tools have in our lives. But in order to make good decisions about those values and benefits, we have to step back. We need to do a deep clean, a deep detox, a deep decluttering first. 
Now, we're almost out of time for today. Um, there's lots of tips I could give you for how to do this. Uh, part of the reason doing it October 1st is you have a whole week to prepare, to think about what this might look like in your life. Um, I'll give you a bunch of suggestions. I've done this as well. Um, this book, Digital Minimalism, is really helpful. It walks through how to think about this, how to do this. If you've got $15, just buy the book. It'll be really helpful for you. Um, I'll do a podcast this week. We'll uh, make it available probably sometime on Wednesday. And I'll just share with you a bunch of things that I've learned and a bunch of things he suggests about um, questions you might have, like how do you figure out what's optional? Are there any exceptions to the rules? Of course there's exceptions. So we'll talk through a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, so look for that this week and plan on doing that starting October 1st and being brave and seeing what it does in your life. But you can begin even today to start paying attention to what it is that you are always paying attention to. Let me pray for us. God, I genuinely believe that all of us who are gathered here today or who are listening deeply desire to experience and be a part of things in our life that are satisfying, like a good meal is satisfying, like good relationships are satisfying, like good work is satisfying. And yet, for so many of us, it's hard to find that. It seems elusive. And we know that our attention is often pulled and dragged away, and yet we sometimes feel powerless or we just don't even know what to do about that. And so I just pray that as we talk about this and explore this together as a community, you would continue to give us your grace and your wisdom. You would help us figure this out, and you would help us to trust you more in the process. We pray this in your name. Amen.